All right, guys, go be great. Episode 19 brought to you by the folks at Heart of Sports. What a sports weekend it was, guys. We had MLB, the World Series finished up. The Houston Astros are the 2022 World Series champions. We had NBA running. We had the college football weekend, which was pretty crazy. Two big top 10 upsets in the SEC. Um, we had NFL the Jets with a massive upset of the Buffalo Bills. I know that this podcast doesn't cover it, but we had NHL. We had college basketball start on Monday. Um, and so what a weekend it was for the sports world. And this podcast will be diving right into all of what happened over the weekend and in the past week. Um, and I'm going to start off with the college football folks. So we're going to do college football first. Um, kind of talk about how the rankings look this week and some scenarios that I think could, we could be looking at going forward in terms of what four teams end up as the last four teams. Um, we're going to talk definitely about those Jets right after the college football talk. Um, what a win it was, 20-17 to 17 over Buffalo at MetLife. Um, and hopefully Josh Allen, you know, for as much as – it would be an advantage to the Jets going forward if he was out. I do hope that he, uh, you know, evades any sort of elbow injury. Um, at the end of that game, looked like he was a little bit shaken up with uh, the, the strip sack caused by Bryce Huff. Um, we're going to definitely talk about the Houston Astros because I did say that I thought we would be coming on here to talk about a Phillies World Series championship, so... Kind of got to talk about the three games that brought the Houston Astros a championship, including a no-hitter, um, a combined no-hitter from Christian Javier and a couple of other guys out of the pen. Um, we're going to talk about the Brooklyn Nets, who claim to be an NBA franchise but don't know how to actually run one. Um, and then we will do the picks. The picks... Not as good in college this week, but pretty good in the NFL. Um, so let's start off with the college football. And you have to start off with the Georgia and Tennessee game, folks. What a game. Georgia just absolutely dominated from about midway through the first quarter on. You know, Georgia, from what I remember, had a fumble early on offense and Tennessee recovered. And you kind of thought, well, Tennessee's here to play, but. Um, they ended up with a field goal out of that drive to make it three nothing, and from there, uh, I believe they got outscored twenty seven to ten. Um, it's so crazy because it happened in multiple games, and it happened, you know, a little bit further south in Louisiana later on in the night. But college football really is the only sport in America outside of maybe NFL playoff football. Maybe just in the, maybe it's football in general. I'm not really sure, but Georgia had ninety three thousand fans at that game. Um, and in terms of how loud of a crowd is, I mean, you never really get the gauge of that from TV. But I have never seen in my entire life how many pre-snap penalties Tennessee had to take because of false starts, not knowing when the center was going to be able to snap the ball. I mean, it even got to a point where the right tackle 
was looking back at Hendon Hooker, the quarterback of Tennessee, to see when he was going to do either his footstep or his hand clap. And, I mean, Georgia really had such a, a home field advantage that it was just really tough for Tennessee to get comfortable on offense. In terms of the defense, I don't really think Tennessee played too poorly. I mean, if you told them that they, they kept Georgia to 27 points in their home stadium, I think they would have signed up for that and, and hoped that it had ended up a little bit different. But between Georgia just being relentless on defense, the crowd was loud, um, and, and I think Hendon Hooker has had a lot of clean pockets to throw out of and a lot of time to really let his receivers, specifically Jalen Hyatt, get down the Jalen Hyatt, excuse me, get down the field and throw that ball deep. I think he was just a little bit unsure of his ability to move up in the pocket and throw way downfield. And you kind of saw him overthrow a couple of times where those Tennessee receivers actually got behind the Georgia defense, which I wasn't really expecting to happen much. And it, it happened a couple of times, just no completions on it. Um, they could not, they could not, like I said, Hendon Hooker had no faith of stepping up in the pocket and not getting crushed. And unfortunately, that kind of cost them a little bit in that aspect of the game. Um, but the bigger upset and the bigger game just in general was LSU takes down Alabama um, by a score of 32 to 31. I know that I personally, ever since Brian Kelly has been the coach of LSU and even before, because I'm a Notre Dame hater as well, um, I wasn't a big fan of him, but Boy, oh boy, what a statement win that was. Uh, you get down into overtime. Bryce Young, the Alabama quarterback, scores. And first play, Jaden Daniels, who I was trashing before the game. If you remember last pod, I had Alabama minus 13 as one of my picks. And obviously they lost outright. Um, I was saying that he wasn't going to be able to do it, that Brian Kelly was going to get crushed. And they proved me wrong. First play from overtime, um, Jaden Daniels goes on the read option right down the field for a touchdown. They go for two. They run the play that Clemson ran back in about 2017 or 18 with the Sean Watson where they rolled him out right through the quick little uh, pick play with the slant and the flat through the flat to Mason Taylor son of the great Miami Dolphins defensive end, Jason Taylor. Um, and they walk out of there with a W. Um, the last game that I really quickly wanted to mention before I just kind of mentioned the top 10 ranking and then talk about more so the scenarios here is that Clemson gets dog-walked by Notre Dame Notre Dame does the Lord's work and knocks off Clemson. Clemson is now ranked 10. Um, I didn't really see much of that one, but I did kind of feel like Notre Dame had a good shot to take down Clemson, especially being at home, and that they haven't played well at home all season. So I'm sure you know Marcus Freeman was kind of drilling it into the guys' heads like, hey, this is Notre Dame. Like We, we play well at home too. You know, let's try to turn that that narrative around, and boy, did they do it in a big way. Um, so we'll quickly read the rankings, and then 
kind of go into the scenarios of what I think is going to happen here going forward. Uh, so Clemson was 10. Alabama, with their second loss of the season, is at 9. Uh, Southern California, with one loss in the Pac-12 at 8. LSU jumps up to number 7 with two losses. Oregon is at 6 with one loss out in the Pac-12. Tennessee, obviously, just lost to Georgia and is now at 5. TCU, undefeated and in the Big 12 at 4. Michigan is 3. Ohio State is 2. And Georgia is number 1. In college football. So first but first off with that, number 10, Clemson. I kind of think that Clemson losing to Notre Dame just disqualifies the ACC from really having a chance, given the fact that Clemson is their highest ranking at number 10. And the next highest, I believe, is North Carolina at 15. Um, so if those two teams were to win out and end up meeting in the col or excuse me in the ACC championship which i believe this year is at uh the Panther Stadium in Charlotte could be wrong but um i just don't envision a uh, a scenario where like Clemson is any higher than 7 and UNC is any higher than like 11 or 12 even if they went out and I just don't think a one-loss ACC champion, given the fact that they've shown you that the ACC is last out of the five conferences, in their opinion, because SEC is one. They had you know, Georgia up there at number one after defeating Tennessee, who was number one. And then you have Big Ten because Ohio State and Michigan are next. Uh, then I think the ranking from there is Pac-12, Big 12, ACC, because... Oregon with one loss is six, and TCU with no losses is four. But it kind of feels like if TCU is a one-loss champion and Oregon's a one-loss champion, that they'll give that to Oregon. And that's just my opinion, but we'll see what happens should we get to that point. Um, and so, yeah, I think Clemson's loss disqualifies the ACC from being a part of the college football playoff this year, which uh, is unfortunate because the ACC isn't really in a good spot just based on the fact that these teams are leaving, you know, the Pac-12 and the Big 12. You know, Texas and Oklahoma will be a part of the Big Ten, or excuse me, the SEC within the next few seasons. You also have Oregon, US, or excuse me, USC and UCLA and potentially Oregon leaving for the Big Ten, and I think you're just kind of got you're kind of going to see those two conferences consistently dueling it out at the end of the season in the last four, but maybe I'm wrong about that. Um and so you have to figure that like these teams like Clemson and Florida State may be looking to be on the move, but if not, they're always going to be stuck behind those two conferences. So um Clemson loses to Notre Dame. And I believe the ACC, therefore, is disqualified. Um, LSU wins against Alabama. And I personally believe that it's going to help out the winner of Alabama and Ole Miss this week. Um, because LSU's, the, la the last three games that they're going to play this season are this week against Arkansas. 
um, which they are only a three-point favorite um, in Arkansas, by the way, which I thought was a little bit low, but um, they also will play UAB and Texas A&M. So you can figure that two of those three already are wins against UAB and A&M. Just have to grind one out against Arkansas this week. I'm sure it'll be a tough game, but I do envision LSU being able to pull that one out. And if they win out, um, they are the representative on that side of the SEC to play Georgia. Um, and I, I, I'm sorry to LSU, but I don't really believe that even in a neutral site game in the SEC championship that LSU is going to be able to beat Georgia. Um, I think if you, you know, obviously LSU did beat Alabama, but that game is at LSU, like I was saying with Georgia, and it goes the same for LSU. Like the home field advantage is so is so much of an advantage in college football that you can legitimately say, if you flip both of those matchups around, you have no idea that Tennessee doesn't beat Georgia. You have no idea that Bama doesn't beat LSU. I mean, it's really that big of a difference. And you just have to look at how hard it was for Tennessee to operate their number one offense in the country. You're just in an away stadium that was waiting for a game like that for years. Um, so I think LSU in a neutral site against Georgia has no chance. But should they win out, you know, that's that's their way in. Like, you're at two losses, you're at seven. You're going to be somewhere between four and five when you make the SEC championship against Georgia. And if you win, you're automatically in. And so is Georgia. So um, we'll see. Like I said, LSU, I think they win out. I think they lose to Georgia. And I think they ultimately end up on the outside looking in with three losses. Um, and the next team I would like to talk about is TCU. So they have TCU slotted in at four. Um, the teams that remain on TCU's schedule are at Texas this week. Next week at Baylor. Um, I don't have their third opponent, but I know it is a lot softer than Baylor and Texas. Uh, and then out of those two opponents, Baylor and Texas, the team that finishes with the better of the two records will play TCU again in the Big 12 championship. I think TCU is already locked in because they can't go below Texas or Baylor because both of those teams already have three losses and they're in second third, second and third in the Big 12. Um, so I think given the fact that they will have to play one of those teams twice and that they have to play both of those teams at their university like they have to play in austin against texas they have to play in waco against baylor i don't think they can come out unscathed out of all of that and i think even if they do end up as the big 12 champion but they do lose one of these games to baylor or texas i think they will also be on the outside looking in um an interesting point about this game against texas they are the underdogs by seven points to Texas in Texas this weekend. Gary Patterson, who was the longtime TCU coach, 
is now on the defensive staff at Texas and knows many of the TCU players because he recruited them. So this could be a very interesting matchup for TCU. Um, and like I said, it, if they are the Big 12 champion and they are undefeated, I think there's no doubt they'll be in. I think if they lose one of these games to Baylor and Texas and still end up as the Big 12 champion, they will be out as number five. And the same way, if they go 3-0 to end the season and lose the Big 12 championship, I think they're out as well. So the only way for TCU to be in is to win out 4-0, at least playing Baylor or Texas twice, one of them away and one of them neutral. I think it's just going to be tough for a team that has a couple of magical victories on their resume already. So a great story for TCU and Max Duggan this year and first-time head coach Sonny Dykes, or first-year head coach Sonny Dykes. But I think not a story to be told at the end of the season. Um, Oregon. Oregon is number six. They have a rough schedule. Honestly, if you look at their schedule, might be the hardest schedule left out of all of these teams that are being mentioned. Um, they play Washington. They play Utah. And then they play Oregon State. And that game is at Oregon State this year, the Civil War. So I think as long as they win out, they are also in. Um, although they do have a tough schedule with those two teams that I mentioned, both of those games at Autzen Stadium, and Autzen has to be one of the top five hardest places to play in college football. And you saw how, like I said, and this has been the theme of the episode so far, the home field advantage in college football is so huge that when a team is even or slightly better than another team and then you add in that they are the home team, you have to feel pretty good about their chances. So Oregon, I think you win out, and I don't see a reason why they can't win out, and you're in as number four um, or three. So, And then we go to the Big Ten. Ohio State and Michigan are – two and three. Um, I believe that Michigan has actually been the better team despite Ohio State being ranked two. Um, Michigan does have to play Illinois, but I believe that game is at Michigan. Could be wrong about that. So Michigan has the hardest schedule of the two teams. They obviously have to play each other and Ohio State as the home field this season, Michigan, you saw how big it was for them to have home field last season. A big uh, second half, they pulled away and they were ultimately able to also take home the Big Ten championship. And then they went into the um, they went into the college football playoff, but I believe they played Georgia, and they didn't have such a great time against Georgia. Um, so this is just my guess, kind of, of what four teams we see. Uh, so Georgia wins out. They beat LSU in the SEC championship, and they're number one. Ohio State wins out, meaning that they beat Michigan in the game, um, and then they take down what I believe is going to be Illinois in uh, the Big Ten championship, and they will be number two. 
Tennessee, which I know I didn't mention really at all there, Tennessee is in a spot where they're not going to compete for the SEC championship because Georgia's not going to lose two games. Even if Georgia does lose one game, Tennessee still does not have the tiebreaker, obviously, because they just lost. So Tennessee, no matter what, doesn't play in the SEC championship game, and that kind of helps because they're going to have one loss. It's going to be to the number one team. Um, and then you look at these other resumes, depend and if it works out the way that I'm saying it, well, I think Tennessee's resume with one loss and it being to Georgia brings them in and in a very similar fashion, except for the fact that Oregon will have to play for the Pac-12 championship. Uh, they'll be the Pac-12 champion and their only loss as well will be to Georgia, and I think they'll be number four. So Georgia versus Oregon, a rematch of the first game of the season. Ohio State, Tennessee. And I think ultimately you get an SEC championship once again between Georgia and Tennessee for the national championship. Um, and that's just kind of my thought. I think TCU out because they will lose at least once. I think the winner of Alabama and Ole Miss will be right up there hoping that one of these teams slips up because especially I mean either way if Bama if it's Bama there're two losses and it's to Tennessee and it's to LSU on a two point conversion and if it's Ole Miss they have one loss and they can try to sneak in um and so that's kind of the way I think it's going to shake out in college football, I hope we can come back to this uh, and say that I was right. That would be pretty cool. Um, and so now I will move over to Sunday and the New York Jets. The New York Jets, as 12-point home dogs, beat everybody's consensus number one team and number one – well, I don't want to say number one quarterback because I think Patrick Mahomes – at least has to be in the conversation with Josh Allen, if not a little bit ahead of him um, as the number one QB. But no one was giving the Jets a chance. I think even Jets fans, for the most part, kind of had it written down as a loss, folks. I mean, the Bills have looked pretty good. Not more, you know, a little bit more than pretty good. They've looked very good. They've by and far been the consensus number one team in the AFC. Uh, Josh Allen looks really good, pretty much on an MVP type season. Um, and the vibes obviously were low for the Jets after that tough loss at home versus the Patriots where Zach Wilson looked really bad. Um it was a real interesting start to the game because I think, like I said, you kind of sit down at 12.50 and you're like, all right, I'm not expecting much. I, I hope we keep it close. And based on the first few plays, I mean, it was, you know, if, if you lose that game to the Bills, right, you're 5-4 and four going into the bye after a four-game win streak earlier in the season. You've lost your best offensive lineman. You've lost who was your best offensive 
your most exciting offensive player by far in Brees Hall. Um, and it just feels like you go into New England, and if you lose that, now you're 500. And it not, I don't want to say that it's a waste of a four game winning streak because last year you would have been signing on the dotted line for a four game winning streak, but it's not taking advantage of the four game winning streak if you end up five and five. Um, and so I hate to say that it would have felt like same old Jets, but I especially the way the game started with Braden Mann slipping in the rain and the ball didn't really go much past the 40 and they started with the ball on the 45 and then first play, they go right at us. A double move with Stefan Diggs, Cooks, Sauce. I think maybe Sauce was in cover two and kind of got himself looking in the backfield a little bit with his feet planted. That's really the only play that I can think of the entire season where he didn't look that good like one play the whole year that's how good he's been i think there's no doubt that the kid is the rookie of the year he literally has given up one big catch and it was the first play of the game this week so based on those two starting plays and the fact that going into it you didn't think you had much of a chance in the first place it just felt like it was going to be a rough day but then all of a sudden rolling out to his right Josh Allen, I think he just kind of didn't see Jordan Whitehead. Uh, maybe he did and thought he was going to throw it pat. I don't really know. But he throws it right to Jordan Whitehead. We get a pick early. Um, It was kind of tough because, unfortunately, I was at a luncheon that was before awake, so... Um, I, not that I wasn't really tuned in to the whole game, but I was not tuned into the whole game, unfortunately. So I, not that I don't have full takes on this, but, um, you know, it was 14, three, I believe at half or 14, 11. Yeah. Because we got one touchdown drive right before the half ended. So, I mean, you go into the half 14, 11 and, um, like I said, I was just hoping for a close game. So that was all good for me. But you get the ball at half. You got to be feeling like the way that the Jets defense has been playing all season, that you have a chance to win this game now. And the Jets have done in the second half what they've done to a lot of these teams this year that people were saying, well, the Jets beat the second string quarterback of the Broncos. Well, the Jets beat the third-string quarterback of the Dolphins. Well, the Jets beat Jacoby Brissett and the Browns, and none of those games matter and whatever. Well, the Jets went out and did that same damn thing they've been doing to all those bums, to a guy that none of us consider a bum, and Josh Allen. Three points in the second half, and I know that the fact that um the Zach Wilson, or excuse me, the drive out of the half with the fake punt that ultimately ended in no points took up nine minutes so that's you know one one reason that they they didn't really end up with a lot of points on the board but I mean that's that just goes to show you I think what happens when you prepare 
like you have to prepare a perfect game plan to win a game. Like last week, I'm not saying that the Jets had a mindset like, oh, we're better than this team, but I I think based on the fact that the Jets haven't beaten the Patriots in a while and that they've looked really good the whole season, and uh, the Patriots in some games have not, that they thought this team is below us and we're going to get all these demons out and we're going to beat them by 35 points. And they game planned like that and they acted like that. And guess what happens when you act like that in the NFL? You lose every time. And guess what happens when you game plan like, all right, if we make one mistake, we're going to lose this game. Because at the end of the day, in this game, if you made one mistake, you did lose the game. But the Jets didn't make the mistake. Uh, fortunately, after that nine-minute drive that did end in a strip sack by Zach Wilson, of Zach Wilson, excuse me, which was the only pressure that the Jets' offensive line allowed the whole day, which is ultimately the greatest part of the entire game. Um, because the Jets' offensive line is Dwayne Brown, who was not on the in the NFL when the season started, um, Connor McGovern was your only real starter as the center. Um, Nate Herbig, who I don't even think was, like I said, in the NFL or the right tackle, can't even pronounce his name. Like We're getting guys that no one's heard of, people that are past their prime, and we go out and we hold the best pass rush in the league to one pressure. One pressure, I mean, things are really changing uh, at one Jets drive. I think the whole season has been a sign of it, but this was like the icing on the cake, man. I mean, there are so many, like I said, the way that those two first plays happened and the way that the week before happened, like if the Jets hadn't weren't a changed team, they lose the, to the Bills by a lot. They go into the bye five and four with a totally different vibe. You have a tough game against the Patriots no matter what happens. And then who knows? You're fighting for a playoff spot. And either way, they still are going to be fighting for a playoff spot down the stretch. But this is a win that can do so many things for you going forward. I just think the fact that you beat them is just a sign that like, hey, we can stick into we can stick in these football games with any of these teams in the NFL and we can win. Um like I said, unfortunately that long drive with the fake punt ultimately ended in no points, but Josh Allen threw right back to us, Sauce Gardner with a pick. Uh we went down and scored the touchdown to make it 17-14. I guess we missed the two-point conversion after that. Um, and then the drive that ended the game, um, we get the ball with about seven minutes left, and the Jets did not throw it. They just ran it right down the Bills, you know, box, the the front seven. Everybody knew what was coming. They couldn't stop it. And they end up with a field goal. Uh, I'm not going to lie. When we kicked the field goal and there's, you know, a couple of ticks on the clock there for Josh Allen, 
I was nervous. Um, and, you know, that strip sack by Bryce Huff. I mean, Bryce Huff, man, probably one of the best pass rushers in the NFL. Unfortunately, he can't really do much else. And he's really just a third down and, like, you know the ball is being thrown type of guy out on the field, which is fine. But, wow, what a play that was, a strip sack. Unfortunately, Josh Allen's shaken up after the play, and they're kind of checking him out as we speak um, for for a UCL injury, like I said in the beginning of the episode. Hopefully he's all right because that would be a tough loss for the NFL, especially given the fact that, like I said, I think right now he's probably the front runner for the MVP, regardless of the loss. Um, and and I would rather the Jets succeed this season with Josh Allen out there than not, because then there's no oh well Josh Allen got hurt. Um, I also don't think he's hurt, you know, like like season ending hurt because the next play on fourth down that ball traveled seventy one or seventy two yards in the air. And if we don't have Sauce Gardner, they probably won the game because that was the best throw that didn't get completed of the NFL season. I mean, no one else can throw the ball like that. P.J. Walker's throw from last week was 68 or 69 yards, and that one was two yards further. And just Sauce Gardner is step-for-step with the best deep threat in the NFL. And that is exactly why you draft them at number four. So the whole theme to say that this game is the turning point, I think, for the Jets of like, there's no, oh, maybe the Jets are real. Like, no, no, they're fucking real, man. Uh, they game planned well for Zach Wilson. I think they they included a lot of throws that were quick three-step drops under center he got the ball out quick when he gets the ball out quick he's good when you get the ball out quick the quarterback doesn't get pressured and that makes the offensive line look good and then they were confident in that and they started really getting some push in the run game um and you go into the bye six and three i had the jets at nine and eight before the season started they would have to finish the last eight games, three and five, for that to happen. So um, this optimistic Jets fan still can't even believe what's going on. And I can only imagine the people who thought that we'd be a little bit worse than this, how they're feeling right now. So big game next week against the Patriots in Foxborough. I think you just have to game plan Every game, like you're playing the Buffalo Bills, folks. I mean, at the end of the day, Robert Sala has said it his entire stretch of being the head coach here. 90% of the NFL games are lost, not won. So the team that makes the more mistakes and shoots themselves in the foot more is always going to lose. Right now, the Jets have done that in some of these games, and they've lost. But in some of these games... They have forced more errors on the other team, and they've won. And so, I like I said, I think with a lot of good preparation, which you'd hope out of the bye the Jets will, that they can take down the Patriots, move to 7-3, and three, and then think there's a little 
portion of that schedule where it's like Bears, Lions, Jaguars in December. So it could be a fun couple of months in New York, especially with the Giants also being right in the thick of things in the NFC. Unfortunately, they did have some bad news out of the bye week because their play caller on defense and safety, Xavier McKinney from Alabama, um, hurt in an ATV accident in Cabo. So I don't know much of the details there. What I do know is you have to figure with a broken hand that he's at least out for a month, maybe a little bit more. So that could be a tough uh, loss for the Giants. The good thing is that their first game, switching their signal caller to the other safety, Julian Love, um, is going to be against the Texans. And you have to figure that they'll be able to take care of the Texans who are one seven and one or something like that. So a lot of fun has been had in New York and New Jersey during the football season, something we have not been able to say for a while. I think that's the best Jets win that we've had, at least since I've been following the team, which has been seven or eight years since 2015. So, um, yeah, I mean, what a win. You can only hope that things go can only go up from here. Um, and the Jets have a lot of reasons to be excited about what's to come. So uh, I guess I'm going to do the picks in the middle because I just talked about college football and the NFL. So it doesn't make sense to go to the MLB and the Brooklyn Dumpster Fire Nets without including the picks first. So we'll go back to Saturday and we'll do college football. I'm 13 and 11 on these picks, folks. Um, and I'm going to give you three more. The number one confidence pick of the weekend is my North Carolina Tar Heels plus three and a half at Wake Forest. Wake Forest is in a free fall. They lost to NC State and the backup quarterback at NC State last week. The week before, Sam Hartman threw like four picks against Louisville and they lost by 27 points, which I mean, they're, they are a better team than Louisville. Um, North Carolina and Wake Forest are both on Tobacco Road in North Carolina. And basically all that means, folks, is that North Carolina is going to have more fans than Wake Forest at their own stadium. Um, shout out to Connor Hebler, one of my best friends from high school who walked on at Wake Forest and always used to say, how crazy it was that UNC would really, you know, fill their building like that. Um, and at this point, folks, like I'm not going to sit here and say it's not a homer pick, but Drake May has put forth one of the best seasons in college this year. I don't think he's going to get invited to New York for the Heisman, but he is putting up those type of numbers. Um, the offense is really good. Wake Forest's offense has shown that it is struggling a little bit. Um, and I just want to see Clemson in that ACC championship, especially to avenge the onside kick from 2015 where we clearly were not offsides and recovered that ball. I don't care what anyone says. Um, maybe I have the year wrong, but I don't have the onside kick wrong. I could still see the graphic in my head and the play-by-play -play broadcaster saying, yeah, they may have missed that one. Yeah, they did. Um, so UNC plus three and a half. 
at Wake Forest, number one. Number two, Ole Miss, plus 12, hosting Alabama. I mean, Alabama has dominated nobody this season, not one team. I know that they're really good still, but they are 12-point favorites in someone else's building, and it's a team that has one loss. Um, so I don't understand that one at all. I just don't think that they're going to start dominating somebody out of nowhere. Like like I said, they, they have played nine games this season. They have not dominated somebody for more than one quarter against Arkansas the entire season. So I'm going to go Ole Miss plus 12. I know that Lane Kiffin versus Nick Saban means that the Nick Saban 25-2 and record against his former assistants is on the line. Um, he is 2-0 against Lane Kiffin and Ole Miss um, in his career so far, but Ole Miss doesn't have to win the game to keep it within 12. So Ole Miss plus 12 is my number two pick. And number three, over 65 in TCU and Texas. I just don't think either defense stops the other. Um, let's, so let's just enjoy the game, right? Texas defense will stop the run against TCU a little bit. But I think Max Duggan has shown that he is a very good passer this season. And I think that he will light up that Texas secondary a pretty good amount. On the other side, Texas has B. John Robinson, who was the number one running back, I think, last week, 30 carries and 216 yards. Um, and Xavier Worthy has been pretty good as the wide receiver. When Qu Quinn Ewers plays, the starting quarterback of Texas, um, they have been a lot better than when their backup is in, and that's just very obvious. Um, so I feel like over 65 is a pretty safe number, and that game should be probably the best game of the weekend. So we're going to go over to Sunday. It's a scary week when I'm looking at all these lines, folks, and I don't feel that good, and like not a lot of numbers are coming off off of me at the on the college slate but on the nfl slate i'm looking at every number being like oh my god oh my god oh my god i want that one i want that one so um i'm gonna keep it to three in the nfl there's been a lot of injury reports coming out too and specifically around the one game that i wanted no part of thank god so arizona and the rams not being picked don't want it uh, Kyler Murray's questionable. Stafford's in protocol. Both teams stink. Both teams refuse to win. You have Buda Baker giving fake speeches just because he knows that there's the HBO uh, hard knocks in season on them, giving like the worst speech I've ever seen with a little bit of tears in there. So, my number one confidence pick is the Dallas Cowboys minus five against Green Bay. I mean, Green Bay has had a five-game losing streak, and none of those teams are better than the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, the one thing I find interesting about the Cowboys, and I know I mentioned at the end of last episode, I don't know how Tony Pollard's not the starting running back. Like, I fully understand wanting to split the carries between two running backs because you don't want either of them to get a lot of usage. Like, you want to have both healthy for the season. I get that. But Tony Pollard's a top five running back. I think he showed that last week. Um, I think his yards per attempt are number four in the league. Zeke's are 32. 
So there's no doubt. I mean, Tony looks faster. Tony has more home run hit ability. Tony is doesn't get taken down by the first guy either. Like he he is fast, but that's not just his calling card. Like he is a overall very good running back. I get that Zeke means a lot to the Cowboys fans. I just don't see how, at the very least, Tony Pollard doesn't get more of the carries than Zeke. Because when they've played, it's been even. So I don't get it. Um, So I have Dallas minus five in this game. I expect by game day on Sunday, it'll be at around six and a half. Um. I mean, Dallas's defense has been so damn good. It hasn't just been one side of the ball either. And Green Bay has just been struggling so bad. I mean, you have Aaron Rodgers after the game saying we need to simplify the offense more. You have Matt LaFleur, yeah, you have Matt LaFleur, head coach of the Packers, saying, well, we want to, uh, like, I don't know what simplifying the offense means. So there's clearly some disconnect there. I think there has been pretty much all off season and into the season as well, clearly. And just given the fact that their offense lost Devontae Adams, they haven't really found an answer for that. So Dallas minus five is the number one confidence pick. And moving along, we will go to confidence pick numero two. And that is San Francisco minus seven. Against the Chargers, San Francisco off the bye. Um, Debo Samuel should be back. I think this team, you know, I've been saying it since they traded for C-Mac. I think this team is the favorite in the NFC right now, even though their record's only four and four. Like their defense is legit. Uh, they were so close to getting there last year. Their offense is better this year. Um, and I just think the Chargers are a joke. I know they beat the Falcons last week in Atlanta. But this is a way bigger monster, and I've been trying to hunt teams that are on the bye or coming off the bye as they'll be more prepared and they're the better team, so I'll take them. And I also like San Francisco at home. So San Francisco minus seven. If it somehow gets down to six and a half, I'd hammer it. Um, I don't see how Brandon Staley, the head coach of the Chargers, can sit there and say Keenan Allen's day-to-day. I mean, Keenan Allen hasn't played since like week two, folks. How's he day-to-day? Who knows where this guy has been? I mean, he's had, what, the same hamstring injury for three damn seasons? I feel bad because I know my boy Ant has Keenan Allen in a couple of these fantasy leagues, and he's been getting let down by when he's on the field is otherwise a decent receiver. So um, interesting there. You know what? I think I'm going to give four picks in the NFL this week just because, like I said, there's so many damn lines that are flying off the board at me. Um, I'm going to go Seattle plus three in Germany against the Buccaneers. I mean, the Buccaneers can only beat the Rams by three points. Meanwhile, the Rams have not a great offense outside of Cooper Cup. Uh, The defense has been a little bit worse from their season last year, but, I mean, that can always be expected. You're never going to be as good as your 
Super Bowl run um, from the year before. But I just think that uh, Tampa Bay hasn't looked good by any means. Like, I know they won last week, but like I said, the Rams are just more hapless than the Buccaneers are right now. Um, and for some reason, Seattle just keeps getting disrespected. Last week, they were a dog against Arizona. They shouldn't have been. They won. We had that one for, you know, this week. Uh, I think the NFL picks went 2-0-1 because I had Falcons plus three, and they lost by three to the Chargers. Um, so I'm not sure I understand that the why they just keep doing this to Seattle. Um, I know the Tampa Bay's run defense has been marketed as good, but I think their defense is a little bit worse than we're giving it credit for. Um, and I like the fact that Kenneth Walker has showed out so far in the NFL. So it's not just Geno Smith doing this, folks. Kenneth Walker has looked good. The receivers and the tight ends have had a good season as well. DK, Tyler Lockett. Uh, not even sure who the tight ends are for, for Seattle, to be completely honest with you. So I don't want to say an incorrect name. But their defense has been good, too. And I just don't see how Tampa Bay deserves to be favored against anyone right now. Same damn story as the Cardinals last week. And I like to take the Seattle Seahawks plus three um, from Germany. So last pick, I'm going to Monday night. I have not seen the Eagles play enough. So I'm going to try to use this game as a chance to see them. And I'm going to bet against them, folks. Commanders plus 11 right now. Um, I just like Taylor Heineke. I'm not going to lie. That is that's my that is a big part of why I want to take this team. I feel like the Commanders didn't look great in the early parts of the season. And since he's came in, I mean, they lost to the Minnesota Vikings by three points last week at home. The Vikings are the second best team in the NFC according to records right now at six and one or seven and one, excuse me now. And they won three weeks in a row before that. On the other side, I know the Eagles are eight and zero, but they've played a lot of close games. And the only games they haven't played close to were the last two weeks. The Steelers, not a good team, and the Texans. Also not a very good team at all. Um, and so I think the commanders show more fight than some of these other teams have the last few weeks. Um, it kind of, it would be good to see a close game. I feel like a lot of these primetime games have been snoozers on Thursday. And then on Monday, we've seen some some blowouts. I know this Monday was... Ravens by 14 over the Saints. So um, I, I, I would like to see a close game. And like I said, I like to see this Taylor Heineke play, play football. I feel like he's got a great story. He's got a lot of fight. You know, they, they brought in Carson Wentz for a hefty price this year. And he got hurt and sucked anyway. And now Taylor Heineke's come in and made a bad team look better. So. In order, in terms of confidence, number one, Dallas minus five in Green Bay. Number two, San Francisco minus seven, 
hosting the Chargers. Number three is Seahawks plus three in Germany against Tampa Bay. And last but not least, the Commanders plus 11 in Philadelphia against the undefeated Philadelphia Eagles. Who thought we would say that beginning the season? So we will move away from the gridiron. And I guess we'll we'll quickly do the hapless Brooklyn Nets because it's a real quick couple of points, and then we'll get into the MLB. Um, we last left this story off with Kyrie Irving, um, you know, the whole saga with the tweeting to the link of a anti-Semitic film. Um, and he has been suspended indefinitely, at least for longer than five games. And I believe he has a couple of different steps that he has to pass uh, and like almost like a checklist to return. There's been a lot of backlash against the Nets uh, because they, you know, people are saying that they're treating Kyrie like a child, but I'd argue that Kyrie has done everything to deserve to be treated like a child um, in this scenario, because you just can't trust what his next move is going to be at this point. Um, I believe he asked, you know, out of the checklist, he has to pay the fine to the Anti-Defamation League, so do the Nets. He has to meet with the owner. He has to apologize. So he's met like two steps because he had to apologize and he did that. Um, and he had to do something else and he's done that as well. But I said, and I don't think I said it on the air, but I said last week, that I thought Kyrie had maybe an over-under of 10 and a half games in the NBA left in his career, just kind of based on how bad I thought this was going to be for him. And it turns out that I'm right. I just don't see a scenario where he comes back onto the Brooklyn Nets this season. Um, it's not just the fact that this scenario happened either. Like, he has been a problem from day one of putting the Nets jersey on. I mean, he didn't show up to the bubble. He didn't get uh, vaccinated. When they were hiring Steve Nash, he said that Kevin Durant and himself didn't need a head coach because they could do it themselves. So not only has he been bad for business, then you add this onto it, and it's just not a winning formula for staying on the court. Um, I don't, you know, his contract is up after the year. I just don't see why you would invest money to have to question whether he's going to be there or not. Um, so Kyrie Irving out indefinitely. Um, other news with the Nets. They floated the idea to the media that they would try to hire Yudoka, Ime Yudoka of the Boston Celtics, who is suspended as the head coach for relations with a woman in the Celtics front office. That's the only news we have of that story. You know, there's no 
they're being very vague. I don't know if it's because he was involved with a married woman and they don't want that to go out to the media. I think, you know, I would hope that they don't just have him suspended for one season if it is a harassment type of thing, which I don't think it is. But if it was, they then he should be fired and never work in the NBA again, obviously. So um, Jack Vaughn is the was the interim coach and now just named the head coach of the Brooklyn Nets for the next two seasons. He was the bubble head coach of those guys. I think it was uh, TLC and, uh, you know, Chris Chioza and a bunch of guys that, that were not, let's just be, be frank about it, weren't great NBA players. And he was producing wins with that team in the bubble. So you, you, you like that he's getting a chance to be the coach, but I mean, it doesn't seem like they took him very seriously as a as a candidate. After that, they went out and hired Steve Nash. So we'll see. I mean, he he's got a really tough. He's in a tough spot, right? Like you don't know what's going on with Kyrie. Ben Simmons can't stay on the court. The only one that has looked the part is Kevin Durant. I know they they played the Knicks tonight. And um, they they slaughtered the Knicks by like 30 points. Kevin Durant had a triple-double. So you don't got to worry about Kevin Durant, except for the fact that his comment on the Kyrie stuff after the Go Be Great podcast called on him to step up and uh, and kind of, you know, say that what Kyrie said was wrong and and demand that he takes the steps to return and all that stuff. Instead, he said, I wish we could have just kept the focus on basketball and just kept playing basketball instead of letting this be a big story. So not a good quote from Kevin Durant by any means. Um, but I guess in a way, like, yeah, the quote's bad. And, and at that point, like the quote is very bad, but he's not wrong. Like, these basketball players don't most of them don't want to be involved with the whole political nonsense and all that stuff they they just want to play like they just want to answer questions about the game they want to play the game they want to practice they don't want to be talking about conspiracy theories and Kyrie Irving is gone and he's got to pay money like that they, they don't want to do that and i know it's got to be frustrating for Kevin Durant knowing that he is close with Kyrie and like they went there together to win and they're just not going to win because Kyrie Irving's contract is up at the end of the year and they're he's not going back. I, he's definitely not going to back to Brooklyn. I don't think he's going anywhere. I think he's going into retirement, but we'll see. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, so the the Nets, a dumpster fire only seemingly worried about the bottom line and when the bottom line starts to get affected and people start to talk about them negatively, only then do they act on what they know is already wrong. And that is a severe problem. Um, and so we'll see if they can move forward from all of this. It does help that they beat the Knicks tonight, I guess. I mean, this will still be the story though, as long as, especially if the team is losing that Kyrie has been, a cancer in the locker room. He's been a cancer to the 
the community around the team. And I think everybody would just be better off if he stepped away. And that coming from a guy who liked the player, actually loved the player um, when he was younger. So um, I think that's where we stand with that. Hopefully the rest of the time this season where I cover the NBA, it has to do with what happens on the court and not this mess that happens to reside, you know, just 15 miles east of where I live. But if we have to keep talking about how they can't operate the franchise, then we will. Um, and so that is where we leave the Brooklyn Nets. And we move into baseball. So last time I talked to you, it was 2-1 Philadelphia Phillies um, off of the big five-home run game against Lance McCullers. And I said I thought that Philly would be able to take advantage of their home field and take it home. And I could not have been more wrong. Um, the next game after I said that actually was a no-hitter. So Houston came back in game four. And I think I said in the beginning of the episode, it was Christian Javier. I would just like to check that before I give you guys the wrong information. Um, they won 5 nothing. It was a five-run fifth inning for Houston. The game was started by Javier. He went six innings, gave up two walks, and struck out nine. And then the final three innings, the seventh, eighth, and ninth inning men of the Astros bullpen that I don't have the numbers in front of me, but had an absolutely fantastic uh, postseason. Brian Abreu struck out the side in the seventh. Rafael Montero, a 1-2-3 inning in the eighth inning with one strikeout. And Ryan Presley, the closer, uh, one walk and one strikeout in the ninth. So a no-hitter in game four. That's tied the series up. Uh, you move to game five, and it's one of the all-time games of the World Series in the last couple of years. Um, Houston. Altuve triples off the wall to start off the game. They score that run. Uh, first batter of the bottom of the first, Kyle Schwarber, hits a Schwarbaum, and it's 1-1. Um, back and forth the rest of the game. In the ninth inning, Chaz McCormick robs JT Real Muto of at least extra bases. And by the way, just based on where the ball is and where and how it's a chain-link fence there. I mean, JT Muto already had an inside-the-park home run in this postseason in his own ballpark. So it's not crazy to think that Chaz McCormick robbed Muto of an inside-the-park home run that would have tied the game. But at least he would have been on base with one out. Um, and with a chance to, to be driven in, so... I believe Jeremy Pena was the World Series MVP, and rightfully so. Like I said, don't have the stats in front of me, but he had an, an unbelievable postseason. Um, also in Game 5, the story was not just that it was an all-time game of the last couple of years, but Justin Verlander finally got in the win column in the World Series. 
he by and large shut it down after that Schwarber home run in the first. I think he ended up going five innings, gave up a couple hits and a couple of walks across those five innings, left the game with a 2-1 lead, and the Astros were able to win 3-2. So they won two straight in Philadelphia to make it 3-2 Houston. They go back to Houston in game number six. And Philadelphia actually struck first in the top half. Um, I believe this game was on Saturday. So it was kind of on the back burner of everything else because once they went into Houston up 3-2, I felt like it was Houston's series no matter what. Um, I think another Schwarbaum in the top of the sixth for the Philadelphia Phillies, but then Jordan Alvarez hits, like I said, you know, another all-time moment, an all-time home run that goes over the batter's eye in Houston, like an absolute bomb, something I think we thought we would see a lot from Jordan over the postseason, especially after the walk-off home run against Seattle in game one of the ALDS, but had a little bit of a rough stretch there and then ends up delivering the decisive blow of the World Series in the bottom of the sixth. Um, and they celebrate in Houston once again as the World Series champion. So while Houston was celebrating, the New York Yankees were having their end-of-season press conferences. First, they rolled out Aaron Boone. Boone mainly gave the same answers that he's been giving the you know the whole season, and I I think by and large we've known that he's not necessarily tasked with a lot of the decision making, um, because the numbers are what they are, and therefore he just goes by that and. He, he was hired to be, you know, answering and very complacent with what the general manager wants him to do. And so for that, I don't think reading into anything Aaron Boone said during his press conference was really worth it because it's not his fault. Like, yeah, he's not a good game manager, I don't think at all, but... He didn't put that roster together. Um, you know, I think if it was up to him, Aaron Judge would be on contract. So I understand being bat mad at Boone and mad at everything he says. Like, I get it. It is a little bit frustrating to talk, to listen to someone talk who worked in the media, but still seemingly gives out bad answers all the time. Um, one thing that I just don't understand is how the Yankees have some advanced analytics system that no one knows about that has Isaiah Connor Falefa as a good shortstop in the major leagues. I mean, because we all have, if you're an analytics nerd, you can go right onto fan graphs, you can go right onto pro baseball reference, and you can find these numbers for yourself. He wasn't good. 
And then if you do the eye test, he wasn't good either. So how are you going to sit in here and tell me Isaiah Connor-Falefa was a good shortstop this year and he's going to have a chance to be the starting shortstop next year too? How do you tell me that? How do you tell people who really care about this, this team and go to the ballpark and assess things themselves and don't, and they know, they know the sport. How are you going to sit here and tell them that they don't know what they're watching? So I, I was aggravated by that. And a lot of that was Cashman stuff, honestly, because he also said that Donaldson played a great third base and he did. He was a good defensive third baseman. I'll give it to, I'll give him that. But they said they feel like Josh is, wasn't able to get consistent at the plate this year that has nothing to do with age and that he will be the starting third baseman for the Yankees when the season starts next season. I hope it's a lie. But like I said in the last episode or two episodes ago, I mean, he's $22 million. I don't know how you can just not play $22 million worth of your investment. So. And I don't think they're going to be able to trade him anywhere. So he's going to be stuck. I hope he doesn't end up getting a lot of burn. I think given the fact that Cabrera and Peraza ended the season in the playoff roster, I feel like they deserve to start on the opening day roster, which means Peraza has to start somewhere. And you'd have to think it's at shortstop because they didn't say IKF would be the starter like they said JD would be the starter at third. They said that he would compete. So I think Peraza beats out IKF easily to start at shortstop during the season. And then that kind of leaves what happens with the rest of the whole offseason, I think, because you have Cabrera who can play third, he can play second, and he can play the outfield. Um, and you maybe fill him into an outfield spot, especially if you don't end up with Aaron Judge. But if you don't, I mean, if you do have Aaron Judge, then there's only one spot to fill in the outfield, and maybe Cabrera ends up at second, and that is the end of the Glaber Torres era. That still doesn't factor in where DJ LeMahieu fits in because he is one of the few Yankees that's on contract for the next couple of seasons I think he probably in their mind factors in as the starting second baseman so in their head right now because they think we're signing back judge and maybe we are maybe we aren't I think it's gonna you know we're gonna see what happens there but I think in their head they sign back judge and Rizzo and the starting roster next year from right to left in the outfield is Judge, Bader, and Stan because in the Boone press conference, they said that they that Stanton was hurt and that he still went out there and played at the outfield because they weren't worried that he would make it worse and that they intend next season to at least get him out there some of the time in the outfield. So, um, John, left to right, Giancarlo and left, Bader and center, judge and right. Left to right in the infield, Donaldson, 
Peraza, LeMahieu, Rizzo, Higgy and Trevino as the catchers, and then I guess as the reserves. I mean, Hicks is on contract, so Hicks as your fourth outfielder probably next season. Uh, I get. I I I don't think they wanna. I don't think they want to send Cabrera down to AAA. But I don't know how much of a sense it makes to start him on the major league roster as like your utility bench guy either. So that I think that's one interesting thing they have to decide there. I think Glaber's gone, like I think I mentioned last episode, and um, I guess only two last Yankee points. Uh, the Yankees have shown interest in the Japanese left fielder and left-handed hitter Masataka Yoshida, who posted a 1.07 OPS, I believe, in the NPB. Uh, Nippon Professional Baseball League out in Japan. Um, and if you haven't seen a video of this kid's swing, it, it's built for Yankee Stadium, folks. An uppercut left-handed swing. There's not going to be a shift next year, and that gets me to the final point. As expected, Anthony Rizzo opted out. I don't expect him back if they don't get judged back. Um I think they get judged back, hopefully, so Rizzo would come back, and we'll see how the monetary stuff ends up there. But this all comes back down to Cashman not locking up Judge at the beginning of the season because right now, as he said, the dance steps rely on Aaron Judge. The dance steps should be confirmed. He should have been under contract, $40 million a year for eight years. Or whatever. Even if it was, I think at the time, all he was asking for was 36. Now, his contract doesn't start with a four. It doesn't start without a four on the average value per season. It doesn't. It just doesn't. So, Cashman costs us a lot of money that could have went to getting the rest of the team better because I think there are some spots where the Yankees could have improved this offseason and now all they can really do is sign Judge, sign back Rizzo. Uh, they already picked up the option of Severino and I guess maybe depending on how much this player Yoshida gets posted for from NPB, maybe they're in on him. Um but Cashman costs us a lot of money on Judge. He costs us money that could have went to other players. He didn't do a great job of building the roster to win this season. I mean, listen, if you're the GM of the New York Yankees for all this time, and you're coming out and saying that we're comfortable in the process and, and the results will come, like, you have lost it, man. You have no edge anymore. You're fucking done. I'm sorry, but that's what I think of Brian Cashman. He is done. He is in a retirement tour of some sort because he has made moves in the last few years. Most of them have not been good for the team. I mean, I like Garrett Cole. I've come around on Garrett Cole, but in a in years where other teams like the Tampa Bay Rays, the Boston Red Sox, and others 
are picking guys out of the Rule 5 draft and don't have a lot of money tied up in their pitching and are doing very good at doing that, how do you have $51 million tied up between two out of your five starters? How? There's no answer for it. There just isn't. I mean, listen, like I said, I've come around on Garrett Cole. I think he's a great pitcher. He had a 3-5 ERA this year, guys. What happens when the fastball goes down to 95? Like, it's gonna at some point, it's going to go down to 95. Do you think that he is one of those pitchers like a CC Sabathia where he learns how to pitch without the, the great stuff? I'm sorry, but I don't think he does. I don't think he's in that level. Max Scherzer, he's in that level. Jacob DeGrom, he might be in that level. Um, But uh, Garrett Cole, I'm not sure about it. Uh, You know, $21 million to Chapman, $21 million to Josh Donaldson. One guy that didn't help us at all in the playoffs and one guy that, that didn't even show up. Um, so... Like I said, if you're the GM of the Yankees and you're saying that stuff, you should leave and make the team better by doing that. The other thing, like, if I hate to say if George Steinbrenner was alive, because I that's been the that has been a point that has been hammered home on New York radio the whole last two weeks, but. The standard used to be winning and winning it all. Right now, the standard is getting close and getting a lot of people to come to the games and buying jerseys and the TV deal and the bottom line. And I would like to see it go back to the other way because at the end of the day, Brian Cashman has still spent a lot of the Yankees' money in the last 13 years, and they haven't made the World Series. Like, If you are in the top four of payroll every season, year in and year out, at some point, you have to make the World Series. And if you can't, you don't deserve your job anymore. If you're telling me that IKF is a good shortstop in the majors when I know with my own two eyes, I don't even need to look at the damn analytics. If I can see with my own two eyes that he's not good and you're telling me he's good, You don't deserve your job. Unfortunately, the Yankees will give Brian Cashman his job for another couple of seasons, I believe. But I just wanted to get a little bit of a Yankee rant out because I've been spending a lot of time in the car, uh, commuting back and forth to school, and I I, I just can't. It was a rough day listening to that damn press conference. And... And uh, I've listened to, you know, the the radio now. A lot of my trips going back and forth, so I'm always in tune with what's going on with the teams, especially in New York. Um, but I just wanted to sound off on that one for a little bit. And it would be it would be wrong of me to to do all of that Met, uh, Yankee stuff to not bring up the Mets at all. So the Mets lock up Edwin Diaz for the next five seasons for 102 million dollars. That is the highest contract a closer has ever gotten so 
Aralis Chapman's contract was five years, 86. It didn't really look good at the time, and it didn't really work out as well as the Yankees had wanted. In the case of Edwin Diaz, I think he's like 29 years old. And he was definitely the best closer in baseball this year, folks. I know Clay Holmes had a first great couple months, but Edwin Diaz, in terms of stuff, in terms of reliability, in terms of the fact that he has been good in other years of his career just besides this one, he deserves this the role of being the number one closer in baseball in terms of his payment and in terms of the way we think of him. Um, I think it goes to show that Steve Cohen will do what he has to do to keep this team together. The next part of that is signing Jacob deGrom and Jacob deGrom's AAV um, average annual valuation, whatever it is, is going to be somewhere near that Max Scherzer contract of $43 million. So we'll see what they do there. I think they also have to make a decision about Brandon Nimmo. I personally would not sign DeGrom just based on the fact that he has appeared in so few games the last two years. Um, with that being said, I fully understand why Mets fans will fight me on that, and I get it, and I I understand. So if that's what you want to do, go for it. I just think based on the way that he has missed so much time the last two years, that you have to figure the fastball is coming down a little bit, and it'll be a little bit more hittable. And I'm not trying to say that he's not one of the best pitchers alive right now, but we'll see if he can pitch with less on the fastball. We'll see. I'm not taking anything away from what has happened in his career so far. I think he is a great pitcher. I think he's our generation's Tom Seaver for Mets fans. So like I said, I understand why you'd want to bring him back. I would not do it. Um, And interestingly, the Mets put out in the media, like they they told sources that they won't bid on Judge. Um, So I I find that interesting. I thought, and I think a lot of Mets fans thought Uncle Stevie would go after Aaron Judge, at least try to drive the Yankees' price up. But it seems like Steve Cohen has some sort of friendship with with the Yankees owner, Al Steinbrenner, and isn't going to do that to his friend. I, I... Respect it, I guess. I I think the Mets, like, if if you have to ask me, like, all right, you've got $40 million a year. Do you want Aaron Judge or do you want Jacob DeGrom? If I'm a Mets fan, I'm looking at my guy DeGrom, and I'm saying, sorry, dude, but you're telling me that if that, Yank, if that Mets lineup has Aaron Judge in the middle of Francisco Lindor, Jeff McNeil, and Pete Alonzo, that you don't feel damn good about a World Series, then you're just lying to yourself. Now, I would like to once again point out, I understand DeGrom means a lot to all Mets fans. I get it. I really do. 
but he hasn't pitched. Judge was on the field every damn day this season. 62 home runs in a, in a season where the offense was down. Like Yankees fans were saying, oh, there's no way Judge hit 62 again. How do you know the ball doesn't change again? How do you know that all of a sudden balls aren't flying out of the damn park again next season because there's some free agent pitcher that they don't want to have to pay $70 million? So they juice the ball up. Like it, it can, who, there's no way to predict what happens with the baseballs going forward. So to say that Judge doesn't do what he did again is just wrong. And DeGrom has not stayed on the field. So I think Mets fans would, would have liked to see the, the Mets go after him, even if it was just to drive up the Yankees, but they will not do it. Um, and I believe that will conclude Go Be Great. Episode 19, we're here live from the Go Be Great Studios. Uh, it's early in the morning on November 10th. So if you are a veteran listening to this podcast, happy early Veterans Day. If if you're listening to this and you have a veteran in your life, please, From from if you're only getting reminded by me, I hope you're getting reminded by others in your life too. Please let them know how greatly you appreciate their service um, because, unfortunately, you're not going to get, you know, who knows when the last chance that you'll get to tell them that is. So, um, like I said, if you're a veteran, happy Veterans Day. Please wish your veterans happy Veterans Day because some of us would not be here without them so um thank you guys for tuning in i think we will try to stay on like the wednesday morning uh schedule now with the next couple of weeks because tuesday night is the college football ranking and i want to include college football going forward um this week like i mentioned unfortunately a family death and i was not able to get it out to you guys until thursday morning but you can expect Wednesday morning going forward for the next few months and then, or next month, I guess. And then we'll kind of see where go be great takes us from there. Um, I would really like if I could do two times a week and go shorter for you guys. Cause I think, and I've been saying it, I think that the shorter episodes will be better for me. It'll be better for you. And, well, if that's just, if that's not enough, then I don't know what would be. Um, and that would also give me a chance to like go in and have, you know, maybe we'll talk about basketball one day and football the other. And then you can replace it with baseball when one season ends. And yeah, that would work out pretty well, wouldn't it? So uh, like I said, once a mo- once a week for at least the next month, and you can look for it on Wednesdays because that, the college ranking comes out Tuesday. Uh, and then we'll see. Maybe we can get to two times a week. I know in the beginning of the episode, I mentioned that college basketball started this week. I know that this podcast did not have anything on it, but it will in the future. Um, MLB will we'll keep in touch with the offseason the way it kind of goes, um, especially with Aaron Judge. Uh, but if there's no news there, we will probably keep that off of the ledger for now. Um, 
And next week we will have, you know, Giants return from the bye. So we'll, we'll keep up with them, especially see how that defense performs without Xavier McKinney. Um, basketball, NBA, hopefully we can, like I mentioned earlier, get back on the court and talk about stuff going on there. Um, and college football will drive this podcast for the next month. I hope you guys are ready. I'm excited. Hopefully the picks do well this week. And I hope you guys go out there and go be great.